0: Um, The last time I subbed for uh, Dr. Young on a Wednesday night, I think was uh, March the 1st, and we were in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and I said if I get another crack at this, we're going to come back to 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and finish the chapter, but here's what I'd like to do. I'd like for us to get the chapter before us this evening, although we're only going to pay attention to the last few verses of the chapter, verses 8 through 13, I want to kind of get a running start and get warmed up by way of review so that uh, we'll have the context of of uh verses eight through thirteen. Anybody here watch uh, American Idol? Fess up. Come on, get those hands up. Okay. We'll have you out of here tonight in time to see Kelly voted off. <laughs> How many of you think it's gonna be somebody else? Okay, guess I'm alone. Somebody says Paris. All right, who who really doesn't care? All right, good. We'll just go longer. <laughs> that was a trick question and you fell for it. Okay, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Let's start in verse 1 and read through uh, the end of the chapter. Um, Paul says, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I've become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. It's not puffed up, or some translations say arrogant. Verse 5, it does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil. Does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails But whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I am also known. And now abide faith, hope, love; these three. And the greatest, or but the greatest of these, in verse thirteen, is love. And chapter fourteen, verse one says, "Pursue love." A few weeks ago, now we looked at this chapter in the in the context of um, First of Corinthians thirteen, or First Corinthians, the book, which I think is really important. Uh, English language is a marvelous language because it's so flexible uh, just as an illustration of that um, I have heard being a native English speaker although uh, being from the south some may have trouble believing that we actually do speak English um, in the south but we speak a form of English but I've heard from other from other uh, ethnicity nationalities that English can be a very difficult language to learn because of the subtleties of the language when Melinda and I lived in Fort Myers Florida the Church that we were a part of, they are sponsored English as Second Language classes. There is a large and growing Hispanic population. We were a part of uh, a partnering with the Hispanic church to plant a Hispanic church in the Fort Myers area, and as a part of that ministry and as a way to reach Hispanics for Christ, we started English as Second Language classes. And I was a a tutor, a mentor, if you could imagine that, uh, in one of these classes. The lady who taught the class was a third grade teacher from Michigan with a very distinct pronunciation, very proper pronunciation. And she was teaching the class one night. It was a very practical lesson. You know, you, you pay for something, you, you receive change and so on. And she was teaching the class to say this, Thanks, I appreciate that. Thanks, I appreciate that. And they were having difficulty saying, Thanks, I appreciate that. The lady that was seated next to me, Sineen Fleming, and the lady seated next to her, Kathy Stanley, are native Tennesseans. And I said, in the South, it is so simple. They would, they, if they would learn Southern English, it would simplify this whole process because thanks, I appreciate that, is two words in Southern English. Appreciate it. <laughs> appreciate it. Living in America with these wide-ranging dialects makes for incredible nuances, and flexibilities of the language. And I illustrated this before, and we use this like this all the time. We can say, I love baseball, I love the Grizzlies, um, I love the show 24, I love American Idol, I love my wife, I love my dog, I love Jesus. We know that there are differing degrees of love and differing degrees of intent in all of that, but we don't have the means of picking out those subtle nuances and the various shades of that meaning. But In the language of the New Testament, the original language of the New Testament, the language in which it was written, the Greek language, there are those subtleties. In fact, uh, we have trouble really defining the word love. Uh, There's such a thing as uh, an urban dictionary. It defines words in everyday ways. And this is how one entry in the urban dictionary defines love. It says we think about it, sing about it, dream about it, lose sleep worrying about it. When we don't have it, we search for it. When we discover it, we don't know what to do with it. When we have it, we fear losing it. It's the constant source of pleasure and pain. but We can't predict which it will be from one moment to the next. In a short word, it's easy to spell, difficult to find, and impossible to live without. Impossible to live without. I grew up in such a warm Christian home in which love abounded uh, my mom and dad loved each other. I never remember arguments. The only argument I remember is after I left home and they shared it with me. Um, and I just couldn't believe it. My dad called me and he said, um, your mom and I haven't spoken in days. I said, you're kidding. And he said, no. next day he, he called me back and he said, well, your mother's talking to me again. I said, what did she say? She said, she came to me on her hands and knees. I said, Dad, what did she say? She said, come out from under that bed and fight like a man, you coward. (laughs) Well, that story's not exactly true, but, but many of us have seen different levels and different kinds of love, but the kind of love that 1 Corinthians 13 talks about is the kind of love that God has, the kind of love that God is, Uh, Because of all the nuances of our language, sometimes we have a lot of misinformation, a lot of misunderstanding, a lot of mistaken notions. And um, the book, uh, Love Life for Every Married Couple by Ed Wheat, in that book he says uh, because of so much misinformation and misunderstanding about love, we have jumbled impressions about what love really is. Uh, Some years ago, checking out of a supermarket, a number of years ago now, you know, all the the periodicals, publications that are there. um, Alien from Mars gives birth to quadruples and quadruplets or whatever they're called and, you know, all those kinds of things. I saw the, the front of a magazine that, and this is the truth, Elizabeth Taylor speaks out on love and marriage and career. I think she's been married seven times. Um, some people say love is a mystery. Some years ago, the federal government devoted $200 million to a science foundation to study this whole love is a mystery angle. Sometimes uh, people have faulty perceptions based on personal experience. Uh, you remember the, those upper elementary years, maybe junior high years, when people would write notes to one another? I, I, lo- I will love you forever, and, and they used the number four instead of F-O-R. It was forever. And the next week, they were sending somebody else the same letter. We use love in such a frivolous, such a lighthearted, such a flippant way that when we come to a great passage like 1 Corinthians 13, I wonder if the impact of it is not dulled. If the, the real import of what the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul is trying to say to us is not really blunted in some way. Well, a number of weeks ago, we looked at, um, we looked at the various words of the um, of the New Testament, or actually the various words of the of the Greek language, uh, you'll recall this, perhaps, maybe not. Eros is one of those words. Uh, the word um, storge was one of those words. The word phile was one of those words. This was the this was a, a passion, uh, sensual in nature. This was natural affection, the love of a father for a child, the love of a mother for a child, and children for their parents. This was the love of friendship and companionship. The word that's used in 1 Corinthians 13 is this word, agape. It's the characteristic word of the New Testament. It was used in other circumstances, but it wasn't a common word. And when the Holy Spirit moved upon the apostles to pen the New Testament, God in His wisdom did not include this word in the New Testament. He did include this word in the New Testament to describe the relationship of parents and children and children and parents. He included this word in the New Testament because it's the affection and the friendship, the the mutuality of of friends. And he included this word, which is a selfless, sacrificial, lay-down-your-life, unconditional kind of giving, other-centered love. This is the love that John 3:16 says that God has for the world. He so loved the world, He gave his Son. This is the, the love that the Bible uses for the kind of love that the Father has for the Son. This is the kind of love in John 13 that Jesus says the world will know that we're His disciples because we love one another. This is the love that's poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit in Romans chapter five, verse five. This is the, the principle. Uh, Fruit of the Spirit in Galatians five twenty two love joy peace it's the leading feature of God's Spirit who dwells inside of us and so we looked at the beginning of this chapter uh, some weeks ago and again you can't take it out of the context of First Corinthians thirteen because this community of faith this church that had been planted by the apostle Paul was anything as he writes this church but a loving community in fact they had big problems. Um, I won't take your time to go into all the problems that they had, but they were a deeply divided church. First uh, Corinthians chapter 1, they said some of us are following uh, uh, Paul, some of us are following Apollos, some of us are following Peter, and the folks that were really, really spiritual said, well, we're just following Christ. If, if I could illustrate this, it would be like some were saying, we're following Billy Perry. We don't know why but we're going to follow Billy Perry. Some are saying, we're going to follow Bill Luckett. And some are saying, well, we're going to follow Jana McGee. And some are saying, well, we're going to follow Bill. It was a divided group of people. They were so divided that in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, they had such incredible immorality in the church. They had a stepson living in a sinful sexual relationship with his stepmother. They had such division that, that they were taking one another to court in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. They couldn't settle their disputes. And so rather than going to the elders or rather than, than meeting and resolving the broken relationship, they were calling Corey B. Trotz and, um, and getting him involved for emotional pain and suffering and damages and so on. Um, and so this 1 Corinthians 13 comes in the middle of a of a lengthy passage that deals with spiritual gifts in chapter 12 and how those gifts are to function in the church in chapter 14. And Paul says in the opening verses of this chapter that love is absolutely essential for spiritual gifts to function properly. And he gives some examples. He says in verse uh, 1, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, and I am not loving in that communication. I am as edifying as a clanging cymbal or a noisy gong. He says, though I have the ability, this this prophetic ability to understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have faith to move mountains, and if I'm not motivated by the love of Christ in the exercise of these extraordinary gifts, he says, it profits me nothing. It's of no personal benefit there's no edification in loveless gifts and then in verse 3 he says that even if i if i gave all my goods away if i was incredibly benevolent and uh and i distributed my goods to the poor though i even surrendered and submitted my body to martyrdom and it wasn't motivated by love he says it it adds up to nothing so we looked at that um in uh, uh, at the end of uh February about love being absolutely essential for spiritual gifts to function properly. Then we looked at uh, verses 4 through 7, that love is not only essential, but love is also explained by choices, choices that are backed by action. Uh, Scott, uh, Stuart Scott, in the book, The Exemplary Husband, defines this kind of love, 1 Corinthians 13. He says, this kind of love is selfless, it's an, an enduring commitment of the will, to care about and benefit another person by righteous, truthful, and compassionate thoughts, words, and actions. This kind of love is not so much an emotion. It's not so much a feeling. Here's the feeling. Here's the heat and warmth of passion. Here's the love that flows between a parent and a child. Here's the love of buddies, the love of friendship. But this kind of love, is not so much about feeling as it's about a commitment, a choice to act and respond and treat another person in the way that is explained here in verse 4. Love suffers long, and verse 4 says love suffers kind. There's a, a, a definite article in front of love here, and it just means this kind of love. It's almost as if love is sitting for a portrait. It's almost as if love is sitting for a portrait, and you could look at this and say, this is how love is supposed to be. And what follows is, um, is a list here. Lo- love suffers long. It's, it's long-tempered. It's a quality of God that's connected uniquely to mercy. Love is kind. There's an active, deliberate choice toward kindness. Verses 4, four through 7, which we've looked at previously again, there are 15 verbs Action terms that describe the choices that love makes. The actions and responses and reactions that love makes. It basically says negatively in verses 4, 5, and 6, here's eight eight attitudes that love isn't, and they all fit the Corinthian church. Positively, he says uh, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And you know what, guys? Because we're sinners, and because everybody we know is sinners, There's always something to bear. There's always something to endure. There's always something to believe. And there's always something to hope. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And when I look at this list, if I was to look at this list as kind of a spiritual checkup this evening, well, I've got to be honest with you. I've just missed so much of this by country mile. Because... These are what C.S. Lewis calls natural loves. It's not unnatural for a parent to love a child. When you, when you hold that child, and uh, I was introduced uh, again this evening to uh, Skyler? Huh? Wendy Hines and Kyler, 14 months old. She just uh, adopted this little guy, a foster And you know what, you you don't have to be told when you hold that child to love them. It exudes. It just exudes. These are natural loves. But if I'm going to love like 1 Corinthians 13, God's going to have to pour this into my life. He's going to have to pour it in by the Holy Spirit. He's going to have to change this heart of stone and make it into a fleshy, soft, pliable, responsive heart. And finally in verses 8 through 13 not only is, is love absolutely essential for spiritual gifts, are they not beneficial, they're not edifying, they're not helpful. Not only is love explained in all these verses as action terms, not, not necessarily as feeling, it, it's not a, a, a condition, it's a motivation, it's a willful, deliberate determination. But finally, in the last paragraph of this passage, verses 8 through 13, love is exalted even above gifts because it's eternal. And again, you have to understand the context. Paul opens his letter to the church at Corinth and he commends them for their extraordinary giftedness. They were an incredibly gifted bunch of people. In fact, in chapter 1 he says, you come behind in no gift. You're extraordinary. You're carnal. You're fractious. You're childish. You're immature. But boy, you're greatly gifted. And when he comes to this chapter, he says that, that all those gifts... All those incredible gifts of God's Spirit are temporary. They're going to pass away. But the one thing that's going to endure now and throughout eternity, he says, is love in these last few verses. So just look at this, focus on this for just a minute. He says, love endures to the coming age, gifts do not. In verse 8, he says, love never fails. If you have a different translation than the, the one that I'm using, the New King James Version. If you have an English Standard uh, Version, for instance, the one that Dr. Uh, Young is using right now, it says um, that, that love will never end. Love never ends. Uh, the New Living Translation says love lasts forever. Gifts are limited. They're partial. They're temporary. They, they serve a definite end and a definite point. But this quality of love, this virtue of love, is going to endure from now throughout eternity. And that's what Paul is pointing believers at Corinth to. And by application, he's pointing us to as well. You notice he says that prophecies will fail. It doesn't mean that um, this is not, um, well, how can I say this? Because um, this is unrehearsed off the cuff. Um, he's not saying the the whole, um, oh, I'll just say it. You can forgive me or, or chastise me later. The whole modern concept of the charismatic idea of prophecy and personal prophecy and so on is not in view in verse 8. He's not talking about the misuse and abuse of what some of us may have been exposed to in charismatic circles with personal prophecies that are given, that are, that are speculative, that are subjective, that are self-oriented and sometimes inaccurate. I have a first cousin who lives in Knoxville, who formerly lived in Nashville. She had a friend that was involved in this uh, charismatic movement. And I'm not making fun. I'm not minimizing that. Um, And she was expecting. Her friend was expecting. And someone gave her a personal prophecy that it was going to be a boy. And uh, this child was going to grow up and do this and this and this and this. So by faith, she went out. She and her husband, they painted the nursery blue. And they filled it with uh, masculine-oriented themes. And the day of the birth came. And guess what gender they had. You've got a 50% chance of getting it right. What did they? What do you think they had? They had a girl. They had a girl. And this undiscerning but sincere young lady said, Why would God deceive me like that? He didn't. He didn't. When Paul says here in verse eight that prophecies will fail, um, it is—it's um, uh, not that it really necessarily matters, but it's this uh, this word here, and it means that they're going to be abolished. It doesn't mean fail in the sense of they're not going to be accurate, it's not going to be right. He's talking about in in an apostolic way. There's going to be a time when when prophecy will cease. And he says there's going to be a time when the spiritual gift of tongues will cease. And there's going to be a time when knowledge will vanish away. And when is that time? Well, verse 10 he says, when that which is perfect is come. When that which is perfect has come. Now, I don't know what your view is, and frankly on a Wednesday night you may not particularly care about the details of this, but the real point is that gifts are going to be temporary. These extraordinary things are going to be temporary. But the one thing that's really going to endure is the love of God. The love of, the love of God for his people. Our response to that love and our love for one another is going to endure. Now, in verse 10, if you look at that for just a minute, when he says, when that which is perfect has come, there, there are two views possible on this. Um, either it's a reference to Scripture When Scripture is completed, when we have a completed canon, which we do now, Genesis to Revelation, God has revealed to us His mind and will for this age, for this time. We have sufficient information that leads us to a saving relationship with God through Christ. So the perfect would either be a completed canon, Scripture. When Scripture is written, the last stroke of the pen and uh, exclamation point, Revelation 22, is penned then all these gifts are going to vanish, they're going to cease. Or it could be, in verse 10, that when the perfect comes, talking about eternity and heaven and the return of Jesus Christ, when Christ comes back, there will be no need for these gifts. I don't know if you have a definite opinion on that. I've studied this and studied this, and for me it's almost a coin toss as to which it is. But that's not the real point that I want to make tonight about when these things cease. The real point the passage is making is that you and I go through life and we're preoccupied with this and that and sometimes the spectacular things and the really big things that catch our eyes and so on are the temporary flash in the pan kind of things. But the thing that's really going to endure, and that's what Paul's telling this early church, and by application what he's telling us, is the thing that's really going to endure is the love of God. The love of God. And everything else pales in comparison to the richness of God's love for us and our response to His love for us. There are two illustrations in the passage here that Paul uses uh, to support the temporary nature of gifts and love's permanence. It's the transition from childhood to adulthood, changes that takes place. Little, Jack, uh, little Jackson Campbell comes through the church office about twice a week. This is Gail Myatt's grandson. How old is uh, Jackson? What, two and a half? Uh, six more months in the terrific twos. And uh, he came in today and he wanted some Wawa. <laughs> so uh, I don't know if it was Gail or somebody fixed him a cup of Wawa. Well, we all know what Wawa means. It's not the broadcaster on ABC whose first name starts with Bobwa. It's not that wah-wah. It's, it's the drink. It's the beverage. And you know what? A year from now or less, Jackson will come walking through there. And he will have uh, probably a little more than a year maybe. He will have tied his own shoes. It won't be the little Velcro that he wears. And he will ask for a cup of water, please. He will be able to speak. The changes that will take place in his life is the point that Paul is making in Verse 11. Things are changing. I'm moving from childhood to adulthood. The other illustration he gives in verse 12, the transition from seeing imperfectly, a reflection to a perfect face-to-face vision. He's talking about a mirror here, and they didn't have the, the nice mirrors that you and I look into today. They had polished bronze, and it gave an imperfect reflection. And Paul is saying that, that the, this is temporary. It's like moving from, from childhood to adulthood. Right now, it's like you and I are looking in the imperfect reflection of a polished but bronze mirror. And someday, we're going to see face to face. And even in the midst of all those changes, you know the one thing that's going to remain? He says it's going to be love. It's going to be love. The love of God poured out in our hearts. At the end of this passage in verse 13, he says, Now remain these three things. Now abide these three things. But the greatest of these is love. In some ways, love is the outworking of faith and hope. In fact, the, the Bible in Galatians five says that faith works by love. The motivating, the empowering factor for our faith is love. That's the energizing impetus for our faith. It's the sustaining power of our hope. Faith and love are both expressed. Uh, faith and hope are both expressed through love. Love for God, love for others, and and love for one another. We hope in Christ's uh, triumph over death, hell, and the grave and His glorious return and power and great glory leading to a radical godliness. But all of that, the pursuit of our holiness, our worship this evening, going to the Hope Center to help Grady McWilliams, uh, tithing, giving to Grace Venture, going to for Katrina Relief, all those things is empowered, impelled by the love of God poured out in our hearts. Well, The, the Greek word again in... Our text this evening, 1 Corinthians 13, wasn't in common use. All these others were, but this one wasn't. It's almost as if God had to pick a particular word, put it in the context of the gospel, put it in the context of his revelation, be taken by the Spirit to explain this kind of love. One commentator says, this kind of love in 1 Corinthians 13 is a love for the utterly unworthy. It's a love which proceeds from a God who is love. It's a love lavished on others without a thought of whether they're worthy to receive it or not. It proceeds rather from the nature of the lover than from any merit in the beloved. It's that kind of love that's characteristic of the Lord's people. It's the kind of love that the Spirit deposits in our hearts at regeneration. C.S. Lewis used a garden analogy, and with this I'll close. He used a garden analogy... And he said that these these kinds of natural fruits in a garden would soon deteriorate and produce nothing but weeds if it wasn't for the rake, the shovel, the water, the fertilizer, and the weed killer of this kind of love here. These loves are informed sustained and ennobled by the love that God has poured out in our hearts. We love our spouses rightly and with passion because it's sustained and informed by this. We love our children because it's sustained and empowered by this kind of love. We love our friends and enjoy the warmth and richness of fellowship because it is founded upon and sustained by this kind of love here. When Paul wanted to further demonstrate to the church at Rome this kind of love, in Romans chapter 12, he says it's the, this is the kind of love that loves an enemy, that blesses those who persecute. This is the kind of love that weeps with people who are weeping, that rejoices with people who are rejoicing. And I tell you, folks, you and I don't have it within us to love like this. That's why we have to stay plugged into the power source of God's Spirit. Only He can produce and cultivate this kind of love that brings such incredible honor and glory to our Father who has loved us with an everlasting love and brings such a winsome witness to a lost and dying culture who so desperately wants and desires to be loved with this kind of love. Let's pray. Father, as we bow before you this evening, we, uh, we confess honestly that there is so much of our own hearts that would um, subvert us and subdue us and betray us from loving like you've called us to love. And Therefore, we pray um, for just a fresh empowerment, a fresh enablement of your spirit. Um, might you be honored and glorified in how we love you and how we love one another and how we love those to whom you would send us as messengers, as ministers of this great gospel of grace. For this we pray, of course, in Christ's name. Amen.